hope all of you are are doing all right. These are difficult days. I know they are. They are for us as well. Uh, it's I can't think of anyone who's truly excited about everything that's going on. Uh, it is funny. We we have a share of our family sort of a mix of introversion and extroversion and some have talked about it being an introvert's paradise but really you need to get outside every once in a while and being in such circumstances like this reminds us that there are serious things going on in the world these are serious days regardless of what you think about why these things are going on whether it's a real disease or whether it's a, something manufactured or or all the variety of strange and weird ideas out there that people are tossing about as people are wont to do in times like this no one can deny that these are serious days These are days that remind us God is a serious God and that God is doing something in the world. In fact, again, here in Charlotte, we had a fantastic sermon last Sabbath by Mr. Rod McNair. Uh, He asked, is God, does God have your attention? Uh, That was his sermon. Does God have your attention? And I just thought I appreciated it was spot on when it comes out in the distribution of sermons. I hope that, uh, I hope that definitely you will take the time to watch it because I just felt like it was it was one of the messages these days need. And Mr. John Robinson, he's uh, my managing editor, uh, we were talking earlier this week about the gravity of the days that we're in. And I do need to give him credit. He's the one that thought of the particular story that I want to relate here at the beginning of the sermon today. Because I want to ask a question here at the very beginning. God is on the move, which I think, I think these events around us show God is on the move. Are we ready to move with him? Are we ready to follow where he's going or to go where he asks? If you turn to Genesis chapter 28, in Genesis chapter 28, we see part, I just won't have the time to read it all, part of the story of Jacob, Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, the son of Isaac, the brother of Esau. If you are not familiar with the story, and we may have new new people with us who perhaps haven't heard it as many times as, as many of us have, it's worth reading the whole story. I, I gave a, a series of Christian living classes at the preteen camp many years ago about Jacob the Rat because he was a he was a stinker when he was young, and he goes through quite a bit that just transforms him and and changes him. And here in Genesis chapter 28. We actually see earlier on where essentially he has, through his own machinations, even his mother's machinations and stuff, he has obtained the birthright, a birthright God was going to give him anyway, but he's obtained the birthright for himself from his brother. His brothers decided, you know what? Hey, when my dad dies, I think my brother does too. Uh, he was going to uh, kill Jacob in the future. And so Jacob flees. He runs away. And he comes to this place and God gives him a vision with a, a ladder to the ground that shows angels ascending and descending and he's just amazed he's amazed by this vision and realizes this this seems some sort of special place so in genesis 28 we read of his comments Uh, it says starting in verse 19 of genesis 28 it says he called the name of the place bethel bethel literally it means house of god bethel but the name of that city had been luz Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, 
Well, then the eternal shall be my God. And this stone that I've set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, God, he says, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, I don't know about you. That uh, prayer has never really impressed me a lot. To me, at least, it seems to say more about Jacob in terms of his state of mind at the time, because it seems so phenomenal. He's like, God, tell you what, you know, I realize I've done all these things. My brother's going to kill me. But man, if I got a deal for you. Uh, if you'll take care of me and make sure my life works out perfectly, exactly the way I want. You know what? This rock, it's your rock, God. And tell you what, 10% of everything I make, I'm giving that cut to you, God. 90-10. And you know I'm Jacob, right? You see, yeah, I'm a wheeler and dealer. I'm going to make something of myself in this world. So 10% of Jacob is the 10% you want. So you have Jacob here still cutting and wheeling and dealing. It's just what he does. But then you go through the next several chapters. And I, it's important to set the stage, but we don't have time to read them all. But God takes him through trial after trial and circumstance after circumstance. He takes him to his cousin, Uncle Laban, who, if anyone on earth could out Jacob Jacob, uh, it was Uncle Laban. And so Uncle Laban is a wheeler and dealer. And Uncle Laban does a real job on him. Uh, he thinks he's going to marry Laban's daughter. And whoop, Laban switches it around and he marries the other daughter. So then he marries the daughter he really wanted. So now he's got two wives. Next thing you know, he's actually got four women that he's having children with as God is building his people Israel through all of these things. And God is blessing him in these times. God is working with him. There's a relationship with him. And yet at the same time, though he is doing that, it's still stressful. There's still trials. In fact, all the people there among Laban and his workers and such and his, his family, they're, they're jealous that, that it seems like Jacob is, is storing all the things and is somehow gathering all the things because of God's blessing that were going to be a part of their heritage and their future. And in the end, he has to leave there. He actually has to flee with his family. Then he hears his brother is coming and years have gone by. And now he's got children and he's grown to a bit of a multitude. And his brother that last he heard wanted to kill him is coming to see him. And he's stayed. He's got wealthy. He's going to have soldiers and the rest. He's going to have family. He's got nothing. What he's got family. He's got children now. And we won't take the time to read it, but I encourage you to do it another time. Not during the sermon, but another time to read actually his prayer in chapter 32, verses 9 through 12. And contrast that with the earlier prayer. You know, in this prayer, now, now that years have passed and he's been pummeled by life a bit, it's a broken prayer, far more. He talks to God and says, you know, instead of, hey, don't you want 10% of this deal? He says, I'm not worthy, God. I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. You know, please, you know, intervene. And God is working with him at that time. Uh, we come to the point where actually God, Jesus Christ, before he was incarnated, the word actually appears to him and wrestles with him, wrestles with Jacob to just see you know, how bad he wants it. It's a it's really a remarkable Remarkable story. So you read this, and, and clearly God is working with them, and he's growing, and they're having uh, a relationship together. But they do come to a time. Turn to Genesis 35. In Genesis 35, things had gotten pretty bad, actually. One of his daughters had been accosted by uh, a man from the land. Uh, two of his sons actually conspired and tricked all of them uh, so that they could slaughter all of them. And he recognizes, you know, the people are going to kill us. They're, they're going to destroy us. The people of the land were enraged about him. And he recognized they were in danger. And it's at that time that God shows up 
in a different way, really, than he had before, it seems. And in chapter 35 and verse 1, we read, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel. Go to where this between you and me started. Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So now he's not really, in a sense, just fleeing to be fleeing. God's actually directing him and saying, you know what? I'm doing something. Come to Bethel. Come here, do this, and set up this altar. And it might surprise you because often our tale about uh, the heroes and patriarchs is when God said go, they just went. And admittedly, that's a lesson that we need to learn. But in this particular case, it's far more important to recognize that he didn't just get up and go. That actually he did something very different. Starting in verse 2, continuing, it says, And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and as has been, and has been with me in the day or in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. Not necessarily that earrings are bad, but often jewelry is ordained, sorry, not ordained, uh, you know, ornate and designed to reflect various customs. Think of a lot of the jewelry we have today. And they gave him these things. And it says, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Now, it doesn't mean he just hid them like he tucked them away. Uh, he buried them. Uh, he buried them. So even if anyone wanted to sneak back and try to find them, they wouldn't be able to find them. He buried them. He removed them. Like the old man, in a sense, is buried under the earth. All of these idols were buried under the ground. And so if you think about it, it might surprise you that here's someone who's working with God and God is working with and developing and they have a relationship. And yet all this time... There were idols present in the family. We didn't turn to all the details, uh, but even his wife uh, that he had married actually brought idols into the family that were there because Uncle Laban was, hey, where, where are my idols? Where are my idols? Well, she wanted them. But when it came time to go, when God was on the move, even though he'd had all this interaction, he'd literally wrestled with God. He recognized I cannot go back to Bethel with these idols. It's time to clean house. And he did. And he buried those idols. You know, it could be easy for us. It's not that Jacob himself was an idolater, but things accumulate in our lives, don't they? If you turn to Ezekiel chapter 14, he had been in that land for years and years, he has wives, uh, he has children, uh, he had spent so much time there. and took him years even to get the wives when you, when you read the story. And we accumulate things like he did. We accumulate, if you will, little idols in our life here and there. In Ezekiel chapter 14, and I just want to borrow the words from the Bible to point out this idea actually is biblical. God is talking to the house of Israel and says in verse 7 of Ezekiel 14, For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me 
and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity. Then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the eternal, will answer him by myself. This idea of idols of the heart. It's easy to think of idols as just a physical statue and think, well, I don't have any statues of angels in my house or I don't have a, you know, some of these different physical statuettes or accoutrements that people can. We, we hopefully we're avoiding those in the church of God. If you think something's okay with those, you, we all need to talk to our, to our local minister. But he's talking about idols we set up in our heart. What is an idol when you think about it? An idol is something that commands a certain kind of reverent attention of us, a certain kind of focus that's really inappropriate for that, that even takes away from the focus we should be giving to God as his proper place. And the second commandment forbids idols. We heard a wonderful sermonette uh, earlier about one of the commandments, and this one's right there next to it. God forbids idols. He's not going to share the focus that he should have with anything else. Not because he's somehow selfish, rather he's selfless. He knows that in the end, those things are bad for us. And so here's the question I have for you today. It seems plain to me, surely it seems plain to many of you, that God is on the move. God is, if you will, calling us to Bethel, the house of God, to make sure things are in order, to do the things that need to be done, to be ready for whatever it is he happens to have on the horizon. Now, let me ask you and me, is it possible, even as we're walking with God, as Jacob did, that perhaps we have accumulated certain idols in our life along the way that need to be attended to so that we're actually ready for whatever it is that God has in store? I would argue that it's far easier to do than we might think. And so that's what I want to address today. I want to encourage us all to hunt out and find our idols than to bury them. And the title of the sermon today is Bury Your Idols. Bury Your Idols. So what I'm going to do is I have a list of idols. Uh, it's, it's pretty general because I want to cast a bit of a wide net, but I don't want that to stop you in your own self-examination. You know who knows your life a whole lot better than I do? You know your life a lot better than I do. I didn't make this with any particular person in mind because how can I? But you know your life. Take advantage of the lessons we had during Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread. The spirit of self-examination should not depart from us in a sense just because we've moved past those days. I hope this encourages you and I that we examine ourselves to hunt these things down. And the examples I've chosen are really just more illustrative of that, to to give us some broad categories in which to hunt. But I do have a pattern for them. My plan is to sort of start from these idols of the heart, to start from the outside and sort of work in, if you will. That's sort of the direction I'm going in terms of how how I've organized these idols, these idols of the heart. So let's look at the first idol that we want to bury. And this one is is very external, and that's just things, just material things that we allow to, uh, to, to be in our lives that we tend to idolize, that we tend to, or even just the idea of really things in general, this, this world outside of us, all the wonderful goods that we so long to have. You know, there's some interesting 
uh, statements in the Bible. If you'll turn to Second Peter chapter 2, I'll just read one. But what I'm talking about here is the phrase of John where he talks about the lust of the eyes, sorry, the lust of the flesh, you know, and the lust of the eyes. He talks about the pride of life, not in that order. It's the lust of the eyes, the things we see that we want. It's like, oh, I want that. Oh, I want this. If you think about it, has the world ever, ever had a day like ours when so much material good is available to so many, at least us here in the West. You know, many people have talked during this, uh, these lockdown days, if you will, and these stay-at-home orders, and thought, what would we do without the Internet? Well, I tend to think, what would we do without Amazon? Or all these services. Now, when you have people that would deliver groceries to you and the rest, I think Amazon might even be kicking themselves. We should have got those drones out there. We should have pushed our our whole drone idea so much earlier. We could just be dominating all of this. And they already are dominating so much. You know, I can look and I can find something on Amazon. And even in these times when, when the shipping is still fairly suppressed and have it in a day or two. Uh, one of my sons works actually now for Amazon helping put all these things together. It's a good hardworking job for a young guy. They got masks and, and such everywhere there. And it doesn't stop. There's so much. And, and what day has someone like uh, people with just middle incomes, even low incomes, been able to essentially have a world they can shop in? I mean, Walmart, Target, all the other superstores of our of our day don't compare in any kind of way to what we have available online. Things you should have, things you shouldn't have, it's all there. And we have people paid tremendous amounts of money to package it and to sell it and to do everything humanly possible to make us want it. Now, maybe all of you out there are completely innocent of that kind of covetous craving. You know what? Let me sit down and you come up and talk to the rest of us. Let me just fess up and say that it's easy for me. You know, I, I see a new MacBook, say, computer. I, you know, I'm blessed. I actually have a laptop I've been able to take advantage of this whole time during the crisis at home. And it's kind of fun working on the, the magazine on this tiny little screen. But, hey, you know, we get it done. We're able to do it. Oh, but then you see the new one come out. Oh, it's, it's so shiny. Look at all oh, the colors. I think those colors are better than on my screen. And I wonder if the keyboard, if they fix that problem with the keyboard, and it's just so easy uh, to desire something else. In and of itself, it isn't inordinate. But when you put it all together and it becomes a way of life for you, that's different. I had you turn to Second Peter in chapter, I think it was chapter 2. And whoops, I'm in First Peter. No wonder that's not helpful. Second Peter in chapter two. And I won't. Paul is. I mean, sorry. Peter is talking about some really not good people at this. But there's one particular descriptor he uses of these people. I want to grab in his description. In verse fourteen, he talks about them saying, "Having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices." They have a heart trained in covetous practices. I read those words and it just hit me like a bunch of rocks to the head that 
we live in a culture in which people that are paid vast amounts of money are actively training you, training your parents and grandparents, training your children, training your infants, if they have eyeballs and ears, to be filled with covetousness, to not be satisfied with the things they have. And that is idolatry. You know, of all of these, this is one of the easiest to connect to idolatry. If you just turn to Colossians chapter 3, covetousness absolutely is a source of idolatrous feelings and devotions and inordinate desire that, like an idol does, tends to displace God from his rightful place in our heart. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, therefore, put to death. By the way, that's a pretty strong passage if you really go into the meaning of the phrase there. It, I think Popeye might have said, moitalize. I can't remember. Maybe that was the Three Stooges. I can't recall. But regardless, it means something serious. You put these things to death. You show them no mercy. Therefore, put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's really interesting uh, the way the, the commandments sort of sort of come around in a certain sense. You have you shall not covet at the end and it kind of comes back to idolatry. When we start just lusting too much after these kinds of things, it's not wrong to want to improve your condition. I hope, I hope, hope that's really clear. It's not wrong to want to do well by your family. It's not wrong to think, you know what, I, I, I wish I could get a raise to, to buy my, my wife a better car, uh, to actually... You know, not have to scrimp so much to get clothes for the kids. That's not wrong. But honestly, is that what society is trying to do to just encourage us to do well by our family? You know, I, I go on Facebook. I don't go that much on Facebook. I post every once in a while, and uh, I, I tend to, to enjoy Facebook vicariously through others because I know myself well enough. Twitter is far more a temptation for me in terms of sucking my time dry. And yet, they have certain things figured out. Right now they seem to think I want surgical masks like every one of these masks that everyone's wearing. But regardless, they learn enough and they will market to you and they will show you the things you want. Everything you do, we're being trained in this. And we need to be honest with ourselves at this time. If we're going to bury all of our idols, we need to ask ourselves, talk with our children about it. Ask our children about it. Have a conversation about it. Maybe they see things in us we don't. Are we covetousness? I mean, sorry, that doesn't make sense. Are we covetous? Are we inordinately desiring things in such a way that we're falling into that trap of making that desire a bit of an idol? Again, to put an idol in the center, you've got to move God out of the way. There's an attitude we should have. I don't want to just talk about the problems. I want to talk about what to, what to do about them. In 1 Timothy in chapter 6, Paul sort of explains to Timothy an approach we should really consider. In 1 Timothy in chapter 6, starting in verse 6, he explains, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. That is, God has provided my needs. Do I need to be fretting 
so much if he hasn't provided everything else? You know, I appreciate Mr. Ames's teaching in terms of going to God with our desires, and we should go to God with our desires. And part of that it has to be a recognition that as we go to God with our desires, our greater desire that is far more important than all of them is that he does the right thing by us as he knows how to do so much more than we do. You know, if we're not careful, sometimes we can finally be given something by God, and then we're, we're lamenting that we didn't have it seven years ago, or we didn't have it at this time or at that time. Why? Because, frankly, a little bit of that covetousness has taken part. So God has granted us something, and, and actually now we're a little bit bitter that we didn't have it when we wanted to. He makes a statement here in verse 9. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Then he goes on, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, which many people are more familiar with that verse, uh, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What struck me in terms of putting this message together in the study I was doing in verse 9, where it says, but those who desire to be rich... And how many of us would say, I'd, I'd like to think I would say, that, well, I'm not, I'm not desiring to be rich. I'm not desiring to have Microsoft money or Apple money or Amazon money. I'm not desiring that. You know what I really want? I just want this item here on Amazon. That's what I want. I want to be able to afford that. You know what I want? I want this. I want that. But what I was thinking about as I was reading this is I already live a life that would be considered wealthy compared to most of the people in Timothy and Paul's day. Especially in the United States, m- most of us live like kings never did in some other countries. It is amazing the abundance with which we are blessed. Uh, you know, my mother-in-law was looking for a new printer. Uh, she, she needed a new printer. It wasn't working when... Go online, you know, find one, relatively cheap price, should be coming if it's not already not already there. You know, it was just like that. You know, how many kings had that kind of service where people from all over the world were hopping to to send me something for something that frankly didn't cost that much? We live like the rich in so many ways. And so when we start coveting even more, we're losing a little bit of, of perspective. When Paul was saying, Look, I got clothes, I'm good, food, I'm not starving. I'm good. I'm all right. Uh, you know, I, I'm in a good place. I don't need necessarily a whole lot more. If it comes along, that's fantastic. It might be nice to have, you know, a tastier drink, or it might, it might be nice to have clothes that don't chafe me so as I'm walking from congregation to congregation. But he says, you know, I have the things I need. I'm not going to be filled with an inordinate desire for more. And so he was mindful of that. So what do we do about that? It is something you can learn. In fact, Paul himself learned. You can go to Philippians 4 and look another time, but do take note of it in your notes. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, In all things I have learned to be content. It's not that he was naturally born with a gift of contentedness. He learned to be content. So we can learn it. That should be encouraging. It's a skill that we can grow in. But let me turn rather to Psalm 63, because I'd like to give you part of what I wanted to do for each of these as best I can. As you're turning there, some of you may be familiar with the now very old movie, I suppose, Raiders of the Lost Ark. At the beginning of that movie, there's a scene where Indiana Jones, and I freely admit, as a child, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. There's a scene where he's going to to essentially take an idol from a, a, a temple 
that he's he's grave robbing, so to speak, and he's getting it for a museum. Again, you're turning to Psalm 63, and as he's doing it, he has a plan. He it's there's going to be a weighted trap. I hate to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but he's got this bag of sand, and he wants to very carefully take the idol and switch it with the sand so that the trap doesn't realize he's taking the idol. So what I wanted you to do. It's, if you want to imagine your Indiana Jones on a search of removing idols, but don't take them to a museum, go, go burn them or bury them, is to replace the idol with something else. That is, if we want to remove that idol, there needs to be something there, and it needs to be God. God needs to be there. But I feel like we can t- attach some specific things to that. And so Psalm 63, I thought, was a great example. Instead of coveting these worldly goods, instead of being an Amazon junkie, perhaps, maybe we can... I was going to say be a junkie of a different sort. That just doesn't sound good any way you put it. Maybe we can be drawn to desiring other things more passionately. And we see that in Psalm 93. I'm just going to read the beginning because it's amazing language when you see this kind of passion in David. Psalm, did I say 93? I'm sorry, Psalm 63 and verse 1. He says, O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus, while I will bless you while I live, I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. He's saying, you know, you, he says, will satisfy me in the same way that the things that just taste delicious and they're so good, you will be that satisfaction for me. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh, law, my flesh. I think it's important that he said my flesh because that's what it was apparently like for him. It was almost as though bodily in his muscles, he could feel that he longed for some kind of contact with God. And so I'm not saying it's an easy switch like Indiana Jones. What I'm saying is just like Mr. Armstrong taught us about getting air out of a glass, the best thing to do is to fill the glass with water. If we can ask God, help me replace any idol of covetousness that maybe I have gained, not purposefully, but just like Jacob over the years as I'm walking with you and collecting these accoutrements that I shouldn't have in my household, please help me bury those and replace them with this. Replace them with this. Uh, let me long to to be fed from things from your word more than I'm long to be fed, long than I long to be fed by by Amazon, perhaps. I'm not trying to pick on Amazon. I appreciate my son's paychecks. Uh, so that was the first one, kind of starting from the outside in. Let's move a little bit closer. In fact, we're going to come right up to ourselves at this point and talk about a second idol that I would like to recommend that we all need to bury. And that one's a little personal because that's ourself. Uh, we need to bury ourselves. I know that sounds strange, but if you need to extend it a bit and abstract it a bit, uh, our self-image, what we tend to think of ourselves too highly is sort of where I'm going. God is not trying to get all of us to think of ourselves first. He's trying to get us to think of others first. I had this thought, and I, and I sure hope it doesn't offend you, 
At least I, if the truth offends you, that's fine. But I don't want to offend you with my presentation because I'm implying something that I that I don't mean to be implying. And let me fess up. I, I mentioned Facebook earlier. I do have a, a Facebook account. I, I, I do. I don't check my messages. It seems like, but once every ten years. So you know, people will message me sometimes and wonder, well, where is he? Well, I don't check my Facebook messages. I get enough email through regular channels. But I, I'm on Facebook. I have an Instagram account. I have a Twitter account. So I'm not I'm not trying to condemn. All of those things. And I'm not trying to condemn the, the environment they've given for us to interact with each other and with people we don't necessarily know. You know, on Twitter, I had a conversation with a, a vegan. Oh, I'm afraid I'm saying that wrong. Vegan, vegan. I, almost, it sounds like a person from another planet. Had, sorry to offend anybody that's out there, but I never really get the word quite right. I'm never sure. But regardless, and it was actually a great exchange trying to ask, well, hey, what's, and trying to see what their, their moral basis is and how that might relate to, to God and, and what he says. So I'm not trying to knock all of those things and being on those things if, if it's healthy. But at the same time, I, I thought about this. Let's say you were an idol. If you were an idol for other people, then what would your temple look like, perhaps? Well, I don't know. I personally think it might look a whole lot like some of our Facebook and Instagram feeds. I can imagine walking into the temple of self, say for me, let's say I just put myself in that place. And along the walls are some of my best Facebook posts, you know, the things that, uh, that I feel and what I think and maybe really sticking it to a person here or there. And my Instagram posts. All these Instagram where maybe, you know, I'm making the duck lips, you know, like some do, you know, really uh, the things, especially when there's a lot of praise for me. It's like, oh, you're beautiful. Like, I admit, I don't I don't get that kind of praise. But, oh, look, you're beautiful. This and that, which, frankly, is the reason I put it up there. I was, I was hoping people would notice, you know, how, how beautiful I am. And you walk through all of that. And I think that that's what would adorn the temple of the self is, frankly, much of the selfies and things that we create on Facebook. And Instagram, uh, there might be a special viewing room for for Snapchat, even though I guess since it disappears, sometimes you couldn't do all of that. But again, I hope there's some balance in this. You know, my wife and I, I remember we were in the Canadian uh, airport and we took a selfie of ourselves, you know, kind of celebrating that to share with our friends and people been praying for the trip. And, and, and there's a certain level in which it does enable us to enjoy things with others. But if we're honest about it, there's a certain extent to which it really can be a little bit perverse. I know that can sound offensive, but I'm asking all of us to think about that. Imagine King David. He's just accomplished something, you know, whatever. He's talked to his men. And after all of his men leave, you know what he decides to do? Take out his phone and take a picture of himself where he's just... You know, standing so, flexing just right. You know, he's maybe he positions something and he realizes he's not quite as sweaty as he wants, so he kind of works it up, makes sure he's got a sheen on himself. There's certain things it's hard for me to imagine the more serious people of the past doing. And that's what I'm asking us is just to consider that. And again, as someone who has taken his own share of dumb selfies here and there and enjoyed that, we make need to make sure that we're not focused on ourselves in a way. You might think, that doesn't mean I'm not focused on God. I'm not saying it does. In fact, take a look at Jacob. That was part of my point. He had a working relationship with God in which God was interacting with him, performing miracles for him and guiding him. And yet he still had these things in his life. And there came a time when God, notice God didn't say, even though I'm sure God was hoping it and wanting it and maybe even knew it would happen, where he said, hey, come to Bethel. 
And by the way, get rid of your idols. He didn't do that. Jacob himself recognized, if I'm going to follow God, this has to stop. And I can't have this anymore in my family. And I'm asking us to examine ourselves. That's all I'm asking us to do. You know, it's interesting. One way to examine yourself and wonder if perhaps you have made an idol of yourself, and one way for me to examine that is, am I easily offended? You know, when we're easily offended, yeah, there, there's people with great passion in the Bible that are upset when God has been insulted. You look at King David. When the Philistines were mocking Israel and their God, David saw that it wasn't just that he was really mocking the army. He said, you have defied the armies of the living God. This is who you have decided to fight. This is who you are mocking. This is who you are degrading. And it's in his name that I am taking you out. He was not offended personally. He was offended because God was being attacked. But you know what? If we're in that place instead of God, we get just as upset when our God is being attacked. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be upset when someone's attacking you. It's a very natural reaction. But those moments can give us an opportunity to examine ourselves. You know, if if you're a human being, you've surely been attacked by another person uh, one time in your life. Honestly, if you went through a school system, you probably were. Regrettably, that can be sort of common. I I know I was. And we definitely our reactions can be a certain it can go a certain way it's not easy but then i notice at least i hope that a certain uh, christian drive kicks in and after recognizing that something certainly was offensive you can't pretend that what was done necessarily wasn't necessarily offensive though sometimes it is a mistake then what do i do with it after that right do i check off the person in my mind as an infidel that, well, well then, uh, a plague on them, right? Or uh, an infatata, or whatever the case may be, because they've done something religiously offensive by attacking me? Funny, Jesus Christ was attacked. You know what he did? He went ahead and died for all those people anyway, is what he did. And so, do we treat ourselves as idols in that sense? The command we're given that, I think, concerning these shrines of the self, if you will, Uh, I see in Philippians chapter 2. And some of you out there might know exactly where I'm going in Philippians chapter 2. And if so, let me congratulate you. Uh, Good job for knowing your Bibles. If you don't know where it is, you know, it's worth learning. But if you do know where it is, then keep in mind, that means you're held accountable for it. Uh, It has a double-edged sword for thinking, hey, I know where this is in the Bible. It's because we're all held accountable for the things we know. And in Philippians chapter 2, it's a rather vital passage for understanding the sort of mind that God is trying to build in us. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read in verse 3. Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. I have an article, hopefully coming out in this Living Church News we just sent to the printer, where I talk about how selfish ambition and conceit corrupts our minds and makes it that much harder for us to actually think soundly. If you've ever known a person who has dabbled too much in selfish ambition and conceit, then you have seen a corrupted mind at work. It's just a natural consequence. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's our goal. 
You can't have a shrine of the self and somehow demonstrate that you somehow are thinking others are, are better than yourself. That's our goal. Now, how do we do that? It's, I wish I could say it's easy. What's wrong with you? Why can't you do that? But I'm human too. I, I feel I've still got a pulse. Uh, I'm also human and it is difficult. We have an instinct in us to protect us, to protect ourselves as if we're number one. One of the most natural things to say in the world is I'm number one. It's all about me. Even whenever we're, we kind of turn that around, uh, someone a long, a long time ago mentioned to me how they really thought they were the worst person in the world. Uh, it just broke my heart to hear somebody say that, but the worst person in the world. Because it clearly wasn't, wasn't true. I definitely knew plenty of worse people. Uh, but that said, even that's kind of, of a perverse sort of self-love, just sort of turned inward and often a reaction to pain on the self uh, and trying to, to, to there's, I don't want to get into all of that, but it is very natural to put ourselves in those kinds of, those kinds of places. And how do we, how do we get this mind? And I, I, again, I want to try to, how do we switch the idol with, with something better? And I think the solution is in Job. If you turn to Job 31, whoops, it's in the Old Testament. I was going to look for it in the New Testament. I guarantee you, I wouldn't have found it there. In Job, we'll start in Job 31, because Job was in that place. Again, I was only using social media as sort of a, a bit of a metaphor. You don't have to have shrines to the self existed long before social media. And in Job 31... Job was spending a, a bit of time in in his shrine. You have Job who's, who was really allowed by, uh, the devil was allowed by God to plague Job to really raise him to the next level. I've, I've said before, I know I have a sermon on it, I won't go on about it, but we often don't give Job enough credit. We'll focus on him being self-righteous. When I would dare say a lot of us, our self-righteous would look way worse compared next to, compared to Job's. Job, you know, God can look at us and say, well, I understand why Job's struggling with self-righteousness. Why in the world are you struggling with self-righteousness? You don't, you don't even know enough yet. You know, you know, you're not that, you're not even good enough to struggle with self-righteousness. But he did. He did have an issue. And we see it highlighted here at the very end of his, of his discussion. It kind of wraps up his case, if you will, in Job 35. And so, sorry, Job 31, Job 31 and verse 35. He wraps up and he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. By the way, the implication is really it's subtle because he gets more than any other part of the book that I can tell. He gets pretty accusatory about God at this point. Goes, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. That's a stamp of pride. Here's my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. That my prosecutor, he's talking about God, that my prosecutor had written a book. That is, if he, if my prosecutor, which he's saying is God, have been watching my life and writing down all these things. He's saying you would find no accusation. He continues that my prosecutor, that is God, had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. Really is a startling startling attitude. I would dare say if we examine ourselves more carefully than often we do, we would find a bit more of that kind of idol in our lives. You may think I could never say things like that to God. 
again, I dare say we don't give ourselves enough credit for how much importance we put on ourselves uh, over sometimes, uh, say, the things of God and other things. But it says there in verse 40 at the end that the words of Job are ended. But then you jump to Job 42. Because after Elihu speaks, God jumps in and actually does address Job. I always thought it was fascinating. Uh, I can't remember who pointed this out. It, it might have been Mr. Aguin, but I honestly can't remember. But it's funny when you read it, Job, in a sense, isn't fully his, his question as for why you've all why have you done all of this? You don't actually see those words come out of God's mouth. Hey, Job, by the way, here's why I did all of this. But God does do exactly what Job needed. If Job wanted to take that idol and move it out of its place, the idol of self, and replace it with God, then he needed one of the great keys to seeing himself rightly. And that is to see God more accurately. You cannot grow in an accurate understanding of who God is and what he is and not be properly put in your place. And that's what God did. When you really look at what God revealed to him, it wasn't just a great answer to his question. It was actually what he needed, which was not an answer to his question. He needed to understand God more accurately because then it would cause him to understand himself more accurately and he would voluntarily step down off of his pedestal, which he does. And you see his response. Contrast this comment in Job 42 to the comment in Job 31. Job 42 and verse 1, Then Job answered the eternal and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Here he's almost kind of saying, look, I'm, I'm only even talking because you asked this question. And he says, it, it was me, by the way. He's saying, you know, who asked, who asked for counsel, counsel without knowledge? Because that was me. And he says, therefore... I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And you go back and Job makes some of my favorite statements about God, where he talks about what a small whisper we hear of God and his many majestic works. Job had a sense of God's majesty and God's greatness, some that perhaps a sense that some of us might even struggle with. And yet this experience took that to another level. Even Job could be taken to another level of recognizing the true greatness of God. And the result was him putting himself in a proper position with respect to that. Verse four, he says, listen, please, and let me speak. Earlier, what did he say? I will proclaim my words to him. Now he's humbly asking permission, even just to say something um, lowly. He says, listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. And he says, here is his answer. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And he's, I've said this before, he's not talking about his physical eyes. He's talking about the difference between hearing and seeing. You know, when we're, we're taking care of things in the room, we can hear the couple of guys uh, earlier, you know, in the, uh, in the control room. Or if someone's out in the hall, we can kind of hear, but it's muffled. It's not quite the same. But when we see him, then you're getting the whole thing. And so he's, he's comparing that. He goes, now I understand you in a way I never did to the point that the things I said, even if they were accurate, he goes, I didn't have a clue as to how accurate they were. I had no idea what I was saying relative to what I understand now. So he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And what's the result? Verse six, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Again, God's not trying to get us to hate ourselves. This wasn't, again, some kind of perverse self-love. He just recognized, compared to you, God, I'm nothing. I do not deserve to be in that central place. Please help me remove that idol and make sure you are there because you only are worthy to be in that place. I want to be a part of that family that's there, and I hope you'll help me be there, but I don't deserve to be there in that place. So, again, if we want to make that change and we want to bury this idol of the self, then one of the things that we can do is seek to understand God better. Seek to to truly grasp His His goodness and His greatness and what He actually does in the world for us and who He really is. And He has revealed that to us. Then we should dive in and, and, and learn to replace ourselves in that sense with Him. All right, I said we're moving in. So you might think, well, how much further can you go? I'm at the self. Well, I want to get a little deeper into the self. So we're going to go a little further. And of the last two things, and I hope I can get both of them in, uh, I thought this would be a good a good halfway point. And that is politics. Politics. I just don't like talking about it. But we need to talk about it because it is so easy to make an idol of in our day. I, I won't go into the details about it. I tried to talk about some of these things way back when I, I gave a sermon about something about being a Christian in the Trump era or something like that. I was trying to address some of these ideas. And I don't want to go over all of those again. If you have questions about this, please talk to your, your local pastor. I don't mind making work for Dr. Scott and Mr. Strain and everyone else, but we don't participate in politics. We don't, we don't actually get out there and vote and try to change the world through political means. We're not going to try to change the devil's world through the devil's means. When Jesus Christ said, this is not my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, is not of this age. So we don't try to do that. At the same time, we still care about the world. And if you're a part of the population at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention this year, Mr. DeSimone and I were there, and, and uh, Mr. Wahavich was there as well, Mr. Stuart Wahavich in Canada, and Mr. Mike DeSimone and I, and we had the opportunity to hear from uh, Bill Barr, you know, uh, you know, part right there of, of, of Mr. Uh, President Trump's um, team, and it was amazing what he said. It was actually a, it was a really remarkable speech, and he talked about how there that increasingly those who are godless if you will you can't in a sense be godless something has to be in that place and for them and he gave the historical background it was honestly it was a fantastically educated speech he pointed out that politics is the religion of many of that persuasion and the more you think about it, it makes sense that it is. You know, we hope to change the world. We hope Jesus Christ comes to change the world and long to be a part of that with him. We have a certain set of morals and guidelines. Well, for a vast part of the populace, politics is their religion. It is their place to preach their version of right and wrong. It is their place to try to make a new world, try to make a better world. And to resist the politics is like resisting a religion. And I think his speech at the 2020 National Religious Broadcasters Convention is available online. I'm not 100% certain, but I believe that it is. And it's worth it's worth looking. Uh, Mr. Mr. William Barr, it was just an excellent speech. 
But I have to say, even though hopefully we are not amongst those for whom politics is a religion, because we have an accurate religion, we actually have a God, the real God to worship, I will say we can still be amongst those for which it becomes an idol amongst our house. When it comes to be something that we do need to bury before we can go where God wants us to go and follow where he wants us to follow. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I already mentioned Jesus Christ's comments in, in John 18, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, We have actually, even though it's in the New Testament, it's being it's from the Old Testament, and Paul is quoting it to those in Corinth. And in verse 16, we'll start in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 6. He says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. You know, there should be no idol in you. There should be no idol in you. In me, we're the temple of the living God and there should be no room for anything more. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's Second Corinthians chapter Six verses 16 through 18. I say that, but I have to at the same time be up front that it's really easy to get caught up in the things of this world. It's incredibly easy. Let me say this. If you don't care about what's going on in the world, there's something wrong with you. We should be caring about other people. It should matter to us if, if truly unrighteous legislation is passed. We should care about that. And I believe that's justifiable biblically. Let's, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 9. God actually takes note when we care about what's going on around us. I am not trying to condemn that in any kind of way at all. Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9. And we'll start in verse 4. Ezekiel 9 and verse 4. Now, this is a, a vision of what's going on. And we're at the temple, essentially, in terms of what's going on there in, in, in ancient uh, Jerusalem and such. And God is taking care of business. Uh, really terrible things are about to happen to the people. Uh, and Ezekiel is giving warning. And he gives special instruction in the vision. And we're going to jump into the thought in verse 4 of Ezekiel 9. It says, The Eternal said to him, Go throughout the midst of the city, through the midst, the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said, In my hearing, go after him through the city and kill do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. This was thorough and this was terrible, terrible times coming. These are the words of a serious God, as we talked about earlier. 
But, he says, do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. I'm not kidding. I know this doesn't really matter. I literally just got a chill down my spine reading those words. I was definitely planning on emphasizing them. But he says, begin at my sanctuary. Isn't that what he said, what Peter says when he talks about beginning at the household of God? That's where it starts because those are the people of any people who should have their minds set right. So he says, put a stamp on those who sigh and cry about the abominations in the city. We should care about the things going on in the world. But brothers, sisters in Christ, it's the abominations going on in the city. It's the sin going on in the city. It's the rejection of God going on in the city. It's not political policy. It's not party spirit, one party over another. It's not politics. Don't get me wrong. That's part of where it gets to be difficult because they do talk about these things in politics. You know, when they had... a in New York, I think it was, when they essentially approved abortion all the way to the point where a child is born and comes out of the womb. And they would say, well, that's ridiculous. We would never, no one, who out there is trying to kill a child literally seconds before it's born? That's actually not the point. The point is the vast disagreement that there should even be any recognition legally that that's not allowed. Why would we rest on the idea, well, no one wants to do it, so why say anything about it? Because I can say it degrades our sense of life. It degrades our sense of what it means to be a human being in God's image. In fact, professional ethicists that study the structures of arguments and ethics have recognized the very ethics that allow you to abort a child are the same ethics that allow you to commit infanticide up to a certain age. That is, it's not like there's some magical line there, like inside the womb, not a human being, outside the womb, magically a human being. And that if you're going to actually follow that train of thought, it actually continues outside of the womb for a while. And so we can find that abominable. That is an utter rejection of the fact that humanity has made something special, is made in the very image of his creator, and that means something. But do we get caught up in the fact that it was one party or the other? Do we get caught up in the fact that, oh, you know, they need to put this guy in that office? I, again, I don't go out on Facebook and social media that much, I have to admit, part of the reason I don't go out there is I do get tired of seeing some of God's people getting caught up in all the politics and either praising our President Trump, you know, and defending him as if they were a part of his PR team or on the other side, attacking the things that he said and the rest, because I don't see anything reflected of the kingdom of God in those things. And forgive me for saying it, but it's depressing when I see that going on. I think, where are we focused? I heard with my own ears. I mentioned this at the Charlotte Family Weekend recently. I heard with my own ears a church member who I know and love very well say once, well, Donald Trump is a godly man. Now, look, I'm not 
knocking him this or that for his policies and his choices. I, I, I've even asked. I think I'd be interesting if, if he and Governor Cuomo were in different places. Uh, you know, would the praise or attack be the same? There's tons of politics, and it's all a mess. And I definitely, I hope all of us are not desirous to say critical things of a human being, especially a leader of our people. Even Paul recanted and regretted, he said, when he found out he was accusing the high priest because you shouldn't slander or tell terrible things about a leader of your people. But that said, brethren, if we're going to say things like that, then we've lost any sense of what it means to be a godly man. And we have gotten caught up in the spirit of politics. And there is an idol in a place it should not be that's labeled politics. We don't have to pretend Mr. Trump is a godly man in order to pray for him and pray for his wisdom and pray that he's able to help us lead godly lives and do the things that we want to do. We don't have to abandon any kind of sense uh, that somehow we think he's up there, you know, keeping the Sabbath and the rest and he's pure of heart. And we don't have to do that. Why do that? Because I tell you why. Partisan spirit takes hold. And next thing you know, we're not even saying God's thoughts anymore or God's words. We're actually spouting the words that the industry, if you will, wants us to say about these people, whether it's positive about a politician or negative about a politician. Look, we should say if a, if a president, if a speaker of the House, if a leader of the Senate, if what a prime minister, whatever the case is, when sin is present, we call out sin. We must call out sin. In fact, we should cry aloud and spare not. It doesn't make a difference if someone is of high position or low. We cry aloud and we spare not. That is what's important. That's what's important. So if we have that idol there, how do we get it out of the way? If we're too caught up, I've mentioned before, I think in other sermons, I myself have been caught up in all of that way back during the the Bush versus Gore debate. And uh, that's when I really became my my sort of uh, political awakening, if you will. And I found myself having, I was thinking too much the thoughts of the Wall Street Journal, a quality paper. Uh, And I ended up doing a Wall Street Journal fast for a long time because I, I needed to remove that. But let's look at a biblical suggestion in the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. As I turned there, I noticed that services are now officially passed when we expected them to end. But I'm hoping we have permission because we, we started everything a little more than half an hour later that we're, we're ending. Uh, we're doing a two-hour service is my hope. Let's see. Colossians chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, he says. These, this, this part of you that is drawn to these earthly things, that part of you died. It was buried in the water. And the rest of our lives should be living out the death sentence that was pronounced on that part of us. It says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Have you ever thought about that phrase? It's a, it's a, it's a 
fascinating phrase. There's so many remarkable turns of phrase in the Bible. And when Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, oh, sorry, before that, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Please forgive me for just a bit to build on this in sort of a strange way, but imagine someone was looking for your life. Imagine someone was looking for your life. What is our life? It's, it's the things we care about. It's, it's, our, it's the things we enjoy. It, it, it's the things that drive us, the things that motivate. It's our life. If someone were looking for your life, well, they have a hard time finding it because it's hidden inside God. It's hidden there with Christ in God. So the only way they can truly understand your life and motivations is somehow to go through what God is and what he represents because it's buried in there where it belongs. If people find you easy to understand in that kind of way, maybe we need to think about that. And whenever I see just these raw political posts that frankly could have come from Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, I don't feel I need to dive deep into the life and mind of God to understand that. I can get that any place. Brethren, this is not a time for us to get caught up in the politics of this world because I guarantee you our Father in heaven and Jesus Christ long for the day when it's finally it and it says we are doing it, this is done. And they long to take all of that and throw it away in the trash heap. That's their desire. We need to model that desire now by throwing our part in the trash heap. And not getting caught up. Again, I'm not saying we can't talk about these things. It's ridiculous not to. We should talk about the events of the day. We should be able to talk about what our leaders are doing and whether it's wise or not. But are we doing it from a perspective where that is occupying a place that only God should occupy as an idol? Or are we doing it in a healthy place where only God is truly in that place? And we're talking about it from that perspective. I hope definitely that it's the latter. I'm certainly working on that myself. The last of the idols I want to cover today, we've gone pretty deep, you know, we went from the things to yourself to inside yourself a bit to politics, which is definitely something on the inside. And I want to go a little further, and this is perhaps the most abstract, but I feel like it's at the core. I want to get to our thoughts and our, uh, essentially our ideas. Can you make an idea, just an idea, an idol? And I would say absolutely you can. Let me say this. Absolutely, I have. I've, I'm 50 years old. I've experienced enough of life that I've, I've done my time with various uh, idea idols, if you will, uh, that I've had to cast into the fire. And we all have to be uh, on the lookout for those. I've mixed my metaphors, you know, buried under the tree. I like to think that Jacob did a lot of things, breaking down those idols and burning them before he buried them. But regardless, I've had my time, and surely you have as well. We can make idols of ideas. Uh, turn to, we're pretty close, turn to Second Corinthians chapter 10. God expects us to take care of those idols. The idols of our mind. The idols of our mind. Sounds like a title of a music album I would have listened to when I was in high school. The Idols of My Mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And boy, the Christian life is a commitment. It is a, it's not just a on the surface religion. And we see this in Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10, he says, we're going to start in verse 4. 
He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You look at tales in the Bible, like when Gideon tore down his father's uh, altar and such, and then kind of scurried away. Did it at night so nobody would see him. But that's what they did. They used ropes, they used all that kind of stuff, and they pulled it down. Well, Paul is talking about spiritual strongholds. These shrines and temples that we've set up. And he says, for pulling those things down, God has given us mighty weapons to be able to do so. Verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity uh, to the obedience of Christ. That is a remarkable standard. This is not a fooling around kind of religion. This is a serious God who expects us to work in our lives to capture every thought. The neurons fire, and God says, that should be mine. That should be mine. Not because he's selfish or greedy, because it really is in the end what's best for us and really does move us along the path to the life we want, truly eternal life, casting down all those arguments. I mentioned every once in a while, uh, Jordan Peterson, definitely not a perfect person, but he has a few insights in this regard. And this one in particular has, ever since I've heard this mentioned, I've examined myself with this because I see this kind of thing reflected in the statement. He talks about, at times, the, 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 the idea that ideas can possess us. Now, I mentioned that to somebody once, and it's like, oh, so you're saying they're like demons. No, I'm not saying a demon. I'm not, I'm not talking about demon possession. I'm talking about literal possession. I apologize. I need to slow down. I'm not talking about literal possession like a demon. What I mean is sometimes we think we have an idea, but in reality, the idea has us. And if you've ever had a friend, you're trying to help them change their mind and come to a healthier place. Uh, if you've talked with someone who's so caught up on a, a false doctrine of some sort or some other thing that isn't healthy, and they just won't let go of that idea, it's possible you're wrong. We should always examine ourselves. But at the same time, sometimes we're not. And sometimes it's as if, it's as if they don't have the idea the idea has them. And there are ideas out there that grab us and they have become idols for us. Again, I don't mean to pick on social media so much, but you know what's fascinating about social media? So many of us are putting out so many public thoughts to the world that we never would have in any other environment. There was a joke on a website a long time ago. It was supposed to be like a news panel. And they were talking about how the FBI and all these spy services, they say, well, you know, we used to secretly spy on Americans. We don't even have to anymore. They just tell us everything they're doing on social media. This guy, I worked hard to find out his credit score, and now I read and I find out what he ate for breakfast yesterday morning. So there's, it's all on display, the things we talk about, the things we care about, the things we're thinking about, but also how we interact with each other. And at least I've seen, and again, I, I can feel the force of this and have in my life and places. Where an idea so possesses us that you see brother struggling passionately against brother or sister struggling against sister or brother sister of Christ online over something that is fundamentally disputable. Something that is fundamentally a disputable thing and they're pouring spiritual calories into this mini warfare and comments on, on Facebook and places like that. 
over an idea that just seems to have them, we can make idols of ideas. Among, I'm, I'm working on an article about this, but among the category of ideas is conspiracy ideas. Conspiracy ideas can be that kind of situation. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying that all conspiracies are false. It's irrelevant when you understand this. They can be the kind of ideas that have someone such that it begins to become impossible to present any kind of evidence that it might be wrong. Because there's always some kind of explanation. It's, there's always something. It's a, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. You know, we're in 2 Corinthians. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You know, I, I'm not going to go in depth about conspiracies in general because, again, like I said, I'm, I'm planning an article and I, I look forward to finishing that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read one of the great concerns of that. I've seen where a conspiratorial idea will take well, how do I put it? Will get its hands on someone so strongly that they begin believing things that are not spiritually healthy. For instance, one of the things we read about love in 1 Corinthians 13 in verse 5, we read that love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Now, some translations say keeps no account of evil. The spirit of that is essentially the same. Isn't thinking of people and assuming the worst and making a list of terrible things. In fact, uh, the, the way somebody put it, I wrote it down. I, I didn't write the source. Said that love puts the best possible construction on the motives and conduct of others. Real godly love is not ready to assume the worst of people, not ready to assume people lie, not ready to assume that people are, are, are trying to deceive. Real love tries to assume the best. And part of what I see, part of what's dangerous in some of these conspiracy ideas is when you look at the vast amount of deception. I'll just, I'll just pick one, for instance, that the earth is flat. If the earth is flat, do we truly comprehend how many people we are accusing of lying? As in hardcore, deceive the world lying. It's not just NASA. It is vast. There are physicists, for instance, that did a, a test with neutrinos. And a test uh, you know, came kind of funny. It made some news for a while. And because with neutrinos, they travel essentially the speed of light, and you have to do so many of them. You have to, for, for various reasons, the labs had to be very far apart. But they were so far apart that the curvature of the Earth uh, was a problem. So they actually had to aim into the Earth uh, by a certain amount because they would travel in a straight line. Neutrinos hit practically nothing. So that's why they had to do so many. And they actually shot through, they actually aimed somewhat into the ground to be able to get to the other lab because it was so far away. Well, if the earth isn't actually round, all of those people I have to assume are lying. Uh, people that have made these long pieces of, of equipment and buildings to be able to detect various things that had to account for the curvature of the earth. It's not just the scientist. It's not just the physicist. It's all of the people who were the construction workers, who are just people with blue-collar jobs trying to feed their family and do a trade. It's thousands upon thousands of people. It's reporters and it's institutions somehow devoting themselves with a passion for deception and lying 
such that no one has ever broke in decades and decades and decades when it would have been the scoop of the century, when some of them would have rather have died and put their lives on the line for a scoop like that. Reporters have have been willing to die for less. Again, I'm not even saying necessarily that the conspiracies are true or false. What I'm saying is there is an unhealthy thing that when we have an idea that becomes the center of so much of our thinking, which how do we know? How much sacrifice are we making to that idea? How much time are we spending watching YouTube videos about that idea? How much time are we investing in that idea? Because all that time is a sacrifice and you sacrifice to idols. It has a spiritual consequence for us. I don't want to think of people that way. If God wants to make it plain that that deception is vast, there is a lot of deception in the world. He's free to do so. He hasn't done so. And we need to be wary of defaulting so quickly to those kinds of things. God addresses, how do we, how do we deal with it? Well, turn to Isaiah chapter 8. How do we replace that idol? And even though this verse specifically deals with conspiracies, it is more broadly applicable than this. Isaiah chapter 8. This will be our second to last passage. Isaiah chapter 8. And look at verse 11. Isaiah 8, starting in verse 11. We read, For the Eternal spoke thus to me, Isaiah said, with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now let me highlight at this point, is God telling Isaiah that there's not actually conspiracies? He's not saying that. What he's telling him is, don't get caught up in all of that. Continuing, verse 13, the eternal of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. What's the implication? That people were so caught up in these things that they had replaced the dread of God. They had replaced the fear of the Lord and they were focused on these things. But that also helps give us the solution. If we want to replace that particular idol in our lives, then do it by growing in the fear of God, not those things. The fear of God should drive us to focus on Him. Very much related to the point we made earlier at the beginning. Study the fear of God. Ask God for more of godly fear where we see Him in perspective. And the more we see Him, there's not room for these other things. These things won't possess us. When our brother online is upset about our position on a health issue, our vaccinations, our public schooling, our homeschooling, our private schooling, or the rest, we won't get into a verbal fistfight with these people. We'll be filled with the fear of God and say, hey, looks like we have to agree to disagree, but I really respect your opinion. And I respect you as someone in the image of God. Don't... You may not say that on Facebook. That might come across strangely. But we'll have a different perspective because we'll recognize that God sent Jesus Christ to die for this person as well. It'll change that perspective and maybe dislodge that idol, that idea, just a bit from where it's lodged itself and we'll start to make room for the things of God there instead. If you don't think people aren't possessed by uh, ideas in a sense, they can't be an idol then you haven't been around long enough. The devil's constantly trying to deceive God's people with wayward doctrine, different ideas. 
and they can become idols, and we have to bury them. The last passage I'll look at in the conclusion, let's turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles and chapter 7. And it's sort of a mixed metaphor since we're talking about idols, but I, I do like this, and it's, it's not out of place. Second Corinthians chapter 7, we see the dedication of the temple, of Solomon's temple. Second Corinthians and chapter 7. And when it's all done, there's this amazing dedication ceremony they've done. And Solomon makes this amazing prayer. And in verse 1 of chapter 7, in Second Chronicles, we read, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the eternal filled the temple. Verse 2, and the priest could not enter the house of the eternal because the glory of the eternal had filled the eternal's house. Brethren, here's what I want to leave you with. These times are clearly serious times. God is on the move. God is doing something and he is a serious God. I believe he wants to fill this house with his glory, that he wants to do something in us. I see Mr. Weston's leadership and Mr. Ames's leadership and, and what the men are trying to do and how we're trying to go. Everything I see at least tells me personally, God wants to accomplish things with us. He wants that glory to fill this house. But if an, if in our part of this house, We have an idol there that doesn't belong. There's no room there for God's glory. He's not going to share that space. And if God is ready for us to move, and you and I want to move with him, we have to commit and we have to finally bury our idols.